It has already been mentioned this afternoon about a welcoming extended to each and every one, and certainly we, to our regular members, always extend that cordial invitation and welcome and the excitement we feel at the opportunity of coming together and assembling in the name of God. To those visiting as well, we hope that you feel at home, and if you are searching for a congregation, one out about which you may have questions, we, we hope that you'll investigate the Pippin congregation, and we would hope that you'd be able to come and feel comfortable to worship and be a part of our family here at Pippin. As we assemble, we appreciate the fact that we turn our attention to the Word of God as the only guide, for therein we find those words that lead into everlasting life through the blessed grace and mercy of the God of heaven. And so it is this afternoon that we have opportunity, as I've selected a lesson, to think about answering a matter. You noticed in the reading found in Proverbs 18, a text that very briefly describes one of the things upon which we shall concentrate here in just a few moments. But I think it only fair to introduce the lesson or form a foundation for it, because answering a matter is, it would seem, a very general title. Many things might possibly be able to be discussed under a lesson by that title, but the subtitle perhaps focuses our attention a bit more carefully. You'll notice that that simply reads, Biblical Advice for Responding to Others. Perhaps we might begin in this way or in this fashion. You and I appreciate the fact and know so very well that we from day to day are called upon to interact with a whole variety and host of various individuals. We do not live as loners in this world, do we? We realize that as members of families we interact with our spouse, our husband, our wife as the case may be, or with our children, with our parents. Even at the work site we appreciate the fact we must respond and communicate to others, be they employers or employees. In the classroom, as students or as teachers, as neighbors, as friends. You see, each day brings to each and every one of us a brand new opportunity to interact with others in a variety of ways. And we appreciate that the Bible so often discusses the ways to interact positively, correctly, and rightly. And this evening, we will look at only one small aspect of one potential problem that can sometimes rear its head as you and I respond to others in the various walkways and pathways of life. At the very bottom of the screen, in fact, the following is leading us directly to that which we shall consider. It operates and works by perhaps asking. Quite often, others will bring something to our attention or make some statement to us. Again, it may well be a friend, an employer, it may be someone who is even a family member. But as that information is shared, you and I are then immediately in position to respond in some way or in some fashion. That information shared, it may be personal, it may not be. That information shared may be constructive, it may not be. We've each been there so many times in the work site where the day starts bad and only seems to get worse. We have each perhaps interacted in ways where a circumstance turns out very differently than that which initially may have been anticipated. In some instances, the very thing we're discussing may play a small role and sometimes even a larger role in that itself. In other words, how do you and I respond when that piece of information is shared with us? What do we say? How do we say it? 
Each situation is sufficiently different that the Bible does give some general things that we might keep in mind, and tonight we will look at four of them. But one more matter before we get to the point of looking at each one of them. First, let me paint a more specific picture for all of us. Maybe you have been there as I have on more than one occasion. One of the ways that can be put into practice, one of the things that might well be done, is when that information is shared, immediately something is said. Or perhaps it is said in a way that later brings regret. Perhaps sometime later we are able to then recognize that I wish I had said that differently. I wish that I had said something else. Or perhaps in another way, secondly, I've made note of the fact that sometimes as we respond, as we make information known, or as we react to that information shared, we might appreciate that our emotion plays a role in that, and we also come later to appreciate the fact that we might wish that we had responded to that employer differently, or we might have said something differently to that teacher, or some other person with whom we may be in contact. To say all of that is to say that these situations are very common, aren't they? It's certainly not the case that we may every day be called upon to face such dramatic decisions, but don't they seem to occur often? Don't they seem to recur frequently? It is true that there are some who are more prone to those kind of decisions than others. Those who take psychological tests are aware of the fact that there are various personality types. Some are more aggressive in the sense that they may be hastier in response. Others are less so. We'll even find tonight there's an individual in the Bible about whom we can look upon who himself was in that very framework. He was aggressive by nature, and often in his response, he will provide for us an example, as we shall see shortly tonight. Having said these introductory thoughts and matters, I would ask that you return with me to Proverbs 18 as we look at the first of the Bible's words of advice for each of us as we think about answering a matter. That text that was read in our hearing just a few moments ago, Proverbs 18, verse number 13. I've listed not only that text, but some thoughts that we each shall encounter and think about as we discuss that text a bit more fully. Notice that it reads, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Now, that's a very brief text, isn't it? And we can appreciate that the book of Proverbs is a book of moral maxims. That is to say, short, brief statements in which truth in a general sense is couched or presented. He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Notice some of the comments and remarks that you and I might together appreciate from that text. First, it's very clear in saying that when you and I are presented with information, when you and I are presented with that which is a situation or a concern or a circumstance, and we respond or we react before hearing it, we place ourselves in the position of folly and shame. Some words might be appropriate here to better define. What does it mean to hear? That may seem a rather foolish kind of question in a sense. We all know what it means to hear, but are we always aware of how the Bible uses that word? For you see, the word hear means more than just to allow sound waves to fall upon our ear, doesn't it? 
In fact, the Hebrew word here means to perceive, to understand. That is to say, when you and I are presented with information, we ought to strive to perceive or understand that which is being shared with us before we frame a response, before we put together that which might be hasty in its response. But notice what's more. The word folly, it means foolishness. But notice also that the word shame here means reproach or insult. It would seem that this text alone fits very naturally into the very question, the very issue we have raised tonight about answering a matter. The first bit of wisdom then that the Holy Scriptures would share with us is that as we answer a matter, we should listen carefully and understand the circumstance that's being shared or discussed before we try to frame a response. That alone means that you and I must appreciate the situation that's being described. Now, to be sure, that appreciation may take varying amounts of time, might it? It might be possible to appreciate almost instantly what's being described and thus to frame a response appropriately and correctly. But it might also be the case that that may take a bit longer, might it? It might be such that a greater amount of time is necessary for us to appreciate, to understand that matter before we respond to it. It would seem that God had this very issue in mind on another occasion when, to Job, he made this remark in Job 38, verse 2. Throughout that book, Job had, of course, been in position of a suffering individual. And in fact, the suffering was very extreme and severe. But the time came when all along he desired to discuss with God and to better understand the reason for the circumstance that was upon him. Finally, in Job 38, God responded. He, in fact, gave Job what Job had wanted all along, to dialogue or converse with God. But when the opportunity came, it did not turn out the way Job imagined. In fact, God begins by saying, verse 2 of Job 38, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? If you and I might paraphrase that, it would be, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Job, all along you may think that you have reason to perhaps accuse or defend yourself before God. Who is this, God said, that darkeneth counsel by words without wisdom, without knowledge? Job was shortly to be reminded of God's greatness and the fact that his way is always right. And hence, you and I should learn too that we should listen carefully when that matter is presented and try to frame an answer based upon an understanding of that circumstance or situation. But that's only the first piece of advice that would be useful and wholesome for us. Let us, in fact, look at the book of Proverbs and consider yet another piece of wisdom, another biblical premise that might be useful for us to consider here. This one found later in the book, in Proverbs chapter 29, verse number 20. Proverbs 29, verse number 20. I've again listed that verse, and it's not a lengthy one, for our consideration, and it simply reads, Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words? There is more hope of a fool than of him. Seest thou a man hasty in his words? It may be again that you and I have found ourselves in a position where, in a desire to be quick, to be hasty, to be immediate in our response to a matter, we later come to regret that which we said, or the way in which we said it, or perhaps both. 
All along the while, we note here that the wise man Solomon, who himself had long been in a position of king, long been in position of a person who was able to see many aspects and varieties of life, he here said, that person hasty in his words, who tries to be quick on the draw and ready always with immediate reply, without giving proper consideration, or as we just discussed, proper understanding to the matter, might respond without knowing the facts, might respond without knowing all the circumstances related to what the person is sharing. Needless to say, when we do so, we may give a reply that's not entirely complete, a reply that's not entirely accurate either. Consider some other thoughts about that verse with me. What does the word hasty mean? That's another one of those things that we should take to heart as we understand that the English language with which we're accustomed today might not be the very thrust and meaning of a term used so many years past. The word hasty simply means hurried or pressed. Have you ever known someone who, in fact, when asked a matter or confronts a circumstance, wants to be the first with answer, wants to desire, and always has to be immediate in reply and response? Sometimes that works to their benefit, but sometimes it doesn't. He that's hasty in his words, the inspired writer said there's more hope of, of a fool than of him. That's something for us to consider and to ponder with great detail and length, isn't it? After all, as you look at some of the other matters in that verse, you and I can see based on that first lesson we learned, we may not be acting wisely when we hurry to give answer when we don't appreciate all the facts that are involved in the decision, when we give counsel or advice or in fact be hurried or pressed to give that answer so immediately. The Bible, doesn't it give us some wholesome advice in the book of James? It's a text that perhaps you've often considered, and it's so brief but yet so profound. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Those were the words of the inspired James. Again, he said, it is wise, it is preferable, it is that which is in accordance to the very approved character of God, to be swift to hear. Be always ready to take in information and then appropriately, rightly, to be slow to wrath, slow to speak. You see, it's sometimes the case that when we speak so quickly, we find that we've put our foot in our mouth, haven't we? We find that we've said something that we later wish we hadn't, that we say something that is taken the wrong way because we didn't complete the reality of our response. We were pressed, we were hurried, we were trying to simply be hasty in our response. We learned then from the Bible that we would do well to appreciate it's not good to just purposefully strive to always be hasty and to be immediate in our response. Perhaps this is the time to consider a pertinent Bible example to this very effect, isn't it? Brother Watkins in the gospel meeting that we recently had made mention of this in one of the lessons as he did so. I thought that we soon, by, based on the character of the plan I had made, would soon revisit it, but this seems a right time to do that. In Mark, the 14th chapter, and you know already who likely I'm going to discuss, you remember Peter, that very one whom the Lord referred to as a stone and gave him a name representative of it. It is the case in Mark 14, as we jump to this aspect in his life, 
Jesus. It was on the night prior to his crucifixion. On that Thursday evening, we remember that he met with the apostles and they celebrated the Passover and then they sang a hymn and went out to Mount Olivet. Almost immediately, the next thing that took place, beginning in verse 27 of Mark 14, is Jesus very bluntly, very straightforwardly, and very to the point said, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Peter took that somewhat offensively. He said, I will not be offended at thee. Though all the others may be offended, yet will not I. Jesus, in hasty reaction, and certainly in divine judgment and recognition, turned to Peter and addressed him directly and said, Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Yet one more time Peter responded. He could not let those words of our Lord lay unanswered, and hence he said, Vehemently, Mark says, he uses an adverb, Peter responded vehemently, V-E-H-E-M-E-N-T-L-Y. That means aggressively, immediately, powerfully, with great emotion. Peter said, I will never deny thee, though I die with you. Thirty-five verses later, not long, thirty-five verses later, we remember the scene, the arrest had taken place. Our Savior was in that particular location being pre-trial, -pre if you will. In the events of that evening, Peter was in the courtyard out just in front, able to see in a distance the events taking place with our Savior. First, a maid recognized him, or so she thought. She said, this man was with him. He was one of him. Peter denied it. He said, I don't know him. At that point, the rooster crowed. However, that evening was young yet. For isn't it true that a short while later, another maid recognized her, so she thought Peter, and said, Thee, he was one of them as well. One more time, Peter denied him. Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. Finally, as the evening wore on, we remember that one last time, Peter, in even stronger language, was employed this time by those who would be his accusers. And the person said, your language betrays you. You are a Galilean. You were with him. The text says Peter began to curse. He began to deny, I don't know the man. And at that point, the rooster crowed the second time. The very thing, 35 verses earlier, that Peter said he'd never do, he found he had done it that very night. Isn't that something for us to consider? to reflect upon the fact that in haste we may confront or ad admit or confess something that we never or always will do, only to find later that with more wisdom we have done the very thing we said we'd never do. It's a somewhat humbling set of circumstances to think about Peter, the role that he would play later in the infant church, and yet what he did on this occasion. Later, of course, our Lord said to him in John 21, when thou art restored, feed my sheep. All the while as that took place, Peter sets before us an example <clears throat> that we too should realize that we ought not be purposefully pressed, purposefully hasty quite often in our responses. Perhaps one final thought though before we move to our third point. We should receive that there are passages which indicate that this same thought applies in our devotion to God. Of course, already our discussion has generally been so, but consider Ecclesiastes 5, verse number 2 with me. Notice the language that's employed and the directness with which the thought is confronted. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse number 2. 
Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. We do understand, of course, that that text described a day and time in which vows were made. Individuals might choose to take a Nazarite vow, or individuals might choose to take a vow of consecration as discussed in the book of Numbers. When that vow was made, God expected the one making the vow to follow through or keep the vow and promise that he or she had made. Perhaps most directly, that's the thought under discussion. But what's the general thought that may be pressing for you and me today? When you and I make a vow, if you will, or a promise that we, in the name of God, shall accomplish something, we should strive to fulfill that promise, shouldn't we? What about that occasion when we take a confession right before our baptism and when we say, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Acts 8, 37. We're making a confession, a promise that the old man of sin will shortly be put to death and the new man will rise to life with Christ. We're making a promise to the God of heaven. We should remain true to that promise. As much as life in us, we should strive to then live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2, verse 11 and 12. You see, we appreciate that God always keeps His promises, doesn't He? His promises never fail. But these two points perhaps rush us to a third one. In what other ways might we wholesomely and powerfully answer a matter? We've looked at these two. Consider yet a third one with me. We noted earlier that the matter of speaking rashly or hastily, we just now looked in Proverbs 29 verse 20 and noted that there is a degree of foolishness or lack of wisdom therein. But notice what else may fall our way if we choose to pursue that route, that is to speak rashly or hastily. One of the things the text reveals in Proverbs 13 verse 3 is this, He that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life. But he that openeth wide his lips shall have destruction. The point that we might well see in this is that there are destructive things, destructive incidents that may come to ourselves or others if we proceed to tread this road of answering too quickly or too hastily. Some examples in the scriptures may help us see that more clearly. Maybe again, you and I have found ourselves there in time. We answer so quickly without sufficient information or facts that we find that when that advice is taken, it has a very hurtful end to it. It has an end to it that in fact does not aid or encourage or benefit, but in fact it seems to be hurtful in its very consequence. In Joshua chapter 9, Here's but one means, one example that we might list. The setting is a very powerful one indeed. For there the children of Israel were in the midst of conquering that land of Canaan. As they were under the leadership of Joshua, they were striving, of course, to rid or eliminate the land of those who were the enemies of God and those whom the children of Israel were ordered to conquer and to remove. However, in subtlety, and in cleverness, a group of people came to Israel and basically lied to them. They were the Gibeonites. As they came, they were wearing old clothes. They had food that was moldy. They had 
various liquids or wines, if you will, of that day that had the appearance of being vastly aged. And the story that they told Israel was, we've come from a far journey. Israel, including Joshua, believed them. And as such, we might remember that this people, though, had lied to Israel. They were not from a far distance and a far place. They were their neighbors. They were amongst the very people whom Israel, by God, was told to, to overcome and conquer. However, a promise was made. Israel promised to be their friends. Israel promised to be their associates and to come to their aid in time of need. Shortly after the compact was made, Israel became aware of the fact that they'd been lied to. They became aware of the fact that these Gibeonites were not from far distance. However, the promise had been made. But have you noticed that in the course of that chapter, one reference is entirely missing. When did Israel consult God with regard to these people? When did Israel consult with God and seek His counsel and His advice? The text expressly says they saw not God. Perhaps as you and I then in matters in which we deal with hastiness and in times when we're called upon to answer a matter, just a moment's reflection, perhaps it'd only take a brief one, might aid us to not make that mistake that Israel made. Or yet another example, the one listed also in Philippians 4 verse 8. That's a text that we've each perhaps thought on often that encourages us to have our mind to think upon things like this. He says, finally, my brethren, if there be any virtue, if any praise, think on these things. But what things? He says, finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. We're thus admonished to perhaps reflect, to think upon these, and they may aid us to frame a proper response to that employer or that teacher or that other person who may so difficultly be placing a matter before us. That reflection, again, even for a moment, may aid us to avoid the thing mentioned in James 3 verse 2. Isn't it interesting that throughout the course of that chapter, James chapter 3, reference is made to the tongue and its place among the members of the human frame. But specifically in verse 2, the inspired writer James says, If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Offending not in word. That's the goal that all of us have. But oh, how difficult sometimes it is to follow through and accomplish that goal. But if any man offend not in word, we strive then to utilize these tips, these advices from the Bible so that we might not offend in word. And all the while, that beautiful and yet compelling statement of Matthew 12 helps us to remember our words are not, should never be spoken in a way that will bring hurtfulness or destructiveness because what is it that our Lord said in Matthew 12 verses 36 and 37 he framed a response to those listening and present on that day with regard to the words that were spoken and he very amazingly reminded all of us then and now that by thy words thou shalt be justified and by thy words thou shalt be condemned Every idle word even, we shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. 
And hence, when we strive to offend not in word, it is a lifetime endeavor, isn't it, to frame answers, to answer matters in such a way that we do not offend in word to those things revealed by God. These three things perhaps point us to the fourth one and the last one that we shall consider this evening. What fourth point might help us answer a matter? This last one we shall find in Proverbs 29, verse number 11. In that ancient day of the long ago, we understand that the following is a part of the Word of God. A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. Isn't that an interesting text? It does not say that the wise man never speaks it. It says he keeps it in or holds it in till afterwards. And that helps us see that perhaps there's a time and a place for relaying the information that we have. Have you ever found yourself in a position where, by wisdom, you thought about saying something at a particular time? But perhaps by the goodness of God's providence, you later are so thankful that you didn't. Because not long thereafter, the perfect opportunity arose to say basically the same thing, and the person was receptive then, when likely at the very first they would not have been. The setting just simply wasn't right. The emotional character wasn't fitting and proper. But on the second occasion, it was. Notice here that the wise man holds it till afterward. I've listed some other thoughts for your consideration there. Isn't it true that there's something to be said for timing? It takes a degree of wisdom to perceive when that timing is right to say a particular matter, when the person would be more apt to respond in the way that would be of benefit, in the way of good. In Proverbs 25, 11, we notice the power of words given in this language. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. A word fitly spoken, that is appropriately spoken, rightly spoken, correctly spoken. We all desire to have those words that would fit that description so that what we say would be taken and perceived by those who hear as apples of gold in pictures of silver. The thought itself is a very picturesque one indeed. Could it not be said that not every moment is a teachable moment? That person may not be responsive at that time. It may not be the time to teach. But a little later that time may appear. Solomon, it seems, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 7, said something else along that line when he said, There is a time to keep silence, and there is a time to speak. A time to keep silence. That is, there's a time when it's better not to say something then. But then a time to speak, the right time has arrived and is thus present when speaking is not only appropriate, but is in fact the correct and right thing to do. All the while, we should quickly though add at this latter point, when we are saying that there is a benefit to slowness in speech and a benefit to perhaps hesitation and a, a properly appreciating a matter. When it comes to matters of doctrine and matters of truth and matters that deal specifically with the eternal destiny of someone, any time we perceive someone in sin, recognizing that they in that state and by that activity are lost from heaven and apart from the will of God, we need to find some way then and there to help them see the error of that way and come to realize the truth to be found in Christ. 
when we discuss answering a matter, we have primarily been more interested in considering more generic ways of responding to things that may not be directly scripturally related or matters of doctrine. In Ephesians 4 verse 26, we notice that a guiding principle even made mention of there by the inspired apostle, Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath or your anger. You see, when we respond with great emotion and with great haste, sometimes out of a sense of anger, we then say that again, which we later will regret or we wish we had not said in that way. And these little tips this evening from the Word of God have helped us perhaps to be better equipped to answer a matter when we're presented with it on a daily basis by those who may not always have our best interest at heart. As we conclude then and summarize, might we say that even Job's friends perhaps could have taken a double dose of this latter point. Isn't it interesting that they sat with Job seven days a full week prior to ever responding to him, and yet when they did... They still accused. They still made him out to be a person like he was not. Perhaps two weeks would have been a better time for them to wait, to prepare themselves to properly gauge the matter before responding in such a way that they did. In conclusion this afternoon, as we have studied about answering a matter, we have attempted to appreciate the fact that to offend not in word is a wholesome and lovely goal. And as we strive to accomplish it, it will take us perhaps a lifetime to try and tame our tongue. The Bible did say that the tongue is a deadly evil full of poison and no man able to completely tame it. But that doesn't mean we ought not to endeavor to try to work toward that end. And these tips that we have looked at this evening, primarily from Proverbs, shall help us and aid us in striving to answer a matter. First, we listen carefully and strive to understand the matter before framing an answer. Secondly, we do not purposefully strive just to be first in answer, just to be hasty or hurried or pressed. Thirdly, we strive to appreciate that to be rash or hasty may well lead to a hurtful circumstance and not a better one. And finally, we know that what needs to be said and what ought to be said might be better said at a more opportune time, might be said in a way that would be much more beneficial to those who hear. This evening, as we've looked at these lessons about answering a matter, may we use them daily to our benefit as we strive to serve God more diligently and more fruitfully. It may be, though, that within the sound of my voice, one or more is in need of a public response to the gospel call of invitation. It may be that you've never had your sins washed away in baptism. That is a beautiful event. It never ceases to be amazing in every regard. For you see, the blood of Christ, though it flowed from the Savior's side at Calvary in the moments right before, it still flows in a very real way for all of us today. Are you outside the body of Christ? You need to come inside that body and baptism's the only entrance. If we could aid you in doing that this evening, we'd be happy to do so. The baptismal waters are ready and warm. The garments and brethren are not only happy to, but willing to aid. If we could take your confession, help you to be baptized, we would certainly encourage you to do that today. If you've become a member of the Lord's body, but you have not lived in a way of which you're proud, 
not lived in a way to which God can give full assurance of salvation for you. Realize that reproach can be taken away. Sin can be washed again by the blood of Christ, 1 John 1 verse 7. And the opportune time while we stand and sing in a moment will be ours. If you need to respond now, let that be done even now while together we stand and while we sing.